As mentioned in episode 151, Jeff Wilson introduced me to Trevor Hamley, one of his colleagues from his time in Antarctica, who was in the final throes of preparing a manuscript about a traverse he made with the Soviet program in 1983. Trevor sent me a copy of the galley proofs of his book, and I read it before heading to Anglesey to interview him. This is the interview, and... At the end of the episode, I'll give you the details on where to go to order your copy, which I recommend doing, because it's one of the most fascinating Antarctic tales I've read, and the book itself is a thing of beauty, featuring reproductions of many colour photographs from his time as part of the Antarctic Traverse. I'll start this recording, and... um ask you to introduce yourself to Ice Coffee, coffee listeners, please, Trevor. Sure. Um, well, my name's Trevor Hamley, and um, I went to Antarctica for the first time uh, in 1978 to Casey as a glaciologist, and it uh, was my first job after leaving university. Uh, I went to Antarctica for the second time in 1983-84 um, with the Soviets, um, from Mirny to Dome Sea, and uh, that is now the subject of this book that I have written and about to publish. Which is called? Uh, it's now called Vodka in a Vegemite Glass, an Australian on a Soviet Antarctic expedition, but that was probably one of the hardest parts of writing was actually deciding on the name. Um, now, I wanted to weave in um, sort of, uh, the idea that, make it clear that it was you know, what the cultural context of the of the trip to Antarctica was. So that's how I come up with the name. So the Soviets would take Australian scientists or just Western scientists into their expeditions? Yeah, they did actually. The Soviets had quite a long history of exchanging with not just Australia but Americans in particular at Muni and at, and at Vostok. And um, that... I. Cultural exchange doesn't happen today, uh, to, to my knowledge. Um, but it was orchestrated through, uh, in my case, the scientific community, uh, the what's it called, SCAR, the Scientific Committee for Antarctic Research. That's how <coughs> that's how the um, invitation uh, occurred. Uh, I was the fifth of, um, I was the fourth person of five invitations to do this Travis back in the in the eighties. And scientists from Russia would also embed with. Um, it wasn't a one-for-one exchange in that sense. It was more. Uh, I, I think it was more on a, a case of where a uh, where a skill and a requirement with where there was a fit. Yeah. And I guess um, that's a cost-driven and a pragmatic thing. For example, I mean. I didn't go on the Dome Sea Travis or the guys before me just because they wanted to be nice guys. They were getting something out of it. We were getting something out of it. It was a mutual benefit idea. And um, But to give you examples of other exchanges that I'm aware of, for example, when I went to Vostok, I stayed in uh, in a hut that was used in the nine, in the international IGY year by Rex Hansen, uh, an American physicist or geophysicist. So that was an example where they had invited an American to stay at Vostok, but at that time I think there was a bit of a mutual exchange where a Soviet would go and stay at... Uh, I assume it was at um, the... Uh, not South Pole, but um, the American base. So, um, yeah, they've done a lot of that. And I, and I read another story about uh, uh, a guy whose name just escapes me at the moment who went to, to Muni in 1961... Um, he was also, uh, I think he was a, a geophysicist as well. That, that type of role was uh, something where uh, the logistics and how the support was given to the science was also important. Like, 
there's no point in going down to a station if if the station can't actually support the work that you're interested in doing. So what was your fit in the Dome C Traverse? What was your role? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I was the fifth person. Well, not actually, I was the fourth person because one fellow went twice, but uh, on this trip and the... Sorry, do you mind if I close No, that? I close it all. In Wingle, catch those microphones. Yeah. Um, the purpose, my, my purpose was to re-measure ice movement stations or marker poles along the route. Uh, um, some of them had been established and only measured once and others uh, had been re-measured but needed a, a more accurate re-measure. So what we were trying to do was um, determine the velocity, ice, surface ice movement velocity, uh, which was an important data point in um, understanding the physics of the ice cap. But, of course, if you've established the position of a marker, that was also very useful information for the Soviets in their studies of the interplanetary magnetic field, which was Vlad's pro- primary uh, science program. So he he was also part of a long-term investigation across that traverse line. But they were looking at the magnetic field. I was looking at ice movement. But, and the, but the movement data was of common interest. And of course, that data was also shared with all the other participants in the um, um, Internet, IAGP, as it was called, the International Antarctic Glaciology Project, of which the Soviet Union was a, a, a primary member. So ultimately they got the benefit of that data as well. And it cost them nothing to get that and cost us nothing to go on the trip. So, you know, it was a, a really a win-win situation. And your memoir offers the first account of satellite-based positioning that I've come across in my yeah. Well, it was all <laughs> it was brand new. I think um, when I went to I went to Casey in '78, uh, and one of my colleagues, friend, uh, went in '76. Uh, he was the first ever to take a JMR, so-called JMR, they were a brand of um, uh, satellite Doppler equipment. He was the first to take one and use it on a similar Travis in 1976. So it wasn't very long after that, 1983. Um, we were certainly amongst the first uh, civilian groups um, to be using that technology uh, at the time. You know, a, a great big orange box that was, uh, I'm just using my hands to try and describe the shape, but um, a great big huge box that was would now be less powerful than, you know, mobile phone in determining position. But of course, the thing is, you... You can't say, therefore, that you could just take a mobile phone to Antarctica and know where you are because <laughs> um, at the time, that, that those boxes were using data that was transmitted from um, satellites that weren't available to the average person. Um, um, it all came from the US Navy uh, and it was when they, for whatever reasons, decided to open it up to civilian use, it became possible. Well, you mentioned metre and a half accuracy in your... Yeah, well, that's that was um, like a pragmatic thing. Presumably, you could perhaps do better. The more passes you get, the more accurate the measurements become. You know, it's sort of a triangulation uh, of the satellite information. It's still pretty impressive because the first time I encountered a GPS in a maritime context was, I think, 1994, and it gave us 300 metre plots because of the wiggle that they introduced to prevent people using it for military ah, right, military yeah. purposes until the, I think it was the f- oh no that's post Gulf War there's something that happened and they switched off the wiggle because they needed really precise measurements but I, I can't remember the sequence now but yeah it was a huge pelican case with a LCD screen and I had to sit in the forecastle of the boat reading out numbers and Oh, yeah. Vomiting into a bag. So the the box, the JMR. There were only two brands available in, in those days: Magnavox and JMR. They were the two American brands. Um, uh, we had the JMR, and I had two of those sets. One was on loan from um, Department of uh, National Mapping, and the other was owned by Antarctic Vision. I mean, they were very expensive equipment in the day, and um, uh, so I had to look. Well, I felt that I needed to really look after them, not lose them, but inevitably 
that they they get damaged during these sorts of trips. But yeah, and they were reading out to magnetic tape that you then interpreted in Australia. They weren't giving you coordinates on. No, correct. No, you couldn't get an information directly. Um, they would record on a, you know, yes, exactly, a magnetic cassette, little cassette like that, and I put it in the box and and I brought it back to Australia for processing. And the bet, all I could do was, I had a microprocessor that basically um, told me whether the data was good or bad, which I'd run it through, and you know, in order to know that yes, we've got enough data to move on to the next one. Although, generally speaking, because of where you are, if you don't get the information you need at the time you visit, well, there's no second chance, you need. But that's why, you know, we had to do these trips a number of times in order to get um, the opportunity to visit. Uh, these poles and revisit them to get sufficiently accurate information. Um, you know, often just the, what's going on with all the other things in the program means you may or may not, you might miss the pole due to you know, a blizzard or you've driven past it or you can't stay for very long for, well in our case, a medical emergency or whatever. Or you just physically don't finish the trip, you'd get halfway and then have to turn back for mechanical breakdowns. All these things have happened. In fact, the, f- the year following me, um, there was supposed to be another trip to Dome C and the <laughs> wasn't, there was no glaciologist from Australia involved in it, but they, they had a, a, I think it was a big fire at Pioneer Skier and the vehicle, the Balop, the living van, burnt down and they had to turn back and go back to Minion. That was the end of that for the expedition. Well, speaking of the, the vehicles, you're the first person I've spoken to that's ever travelled in a Kharkovchanka. Can you describe that for listeners, please? Yeah, the, the Kharkovchanka was a, a unique Antarctic vehicle uh, of which the Soviets had five, um, principally uh, used for Travis work like we were doing. Um, they they built them in the Soviet Union and brought them to Antarctica only. They didn't use them in other, like in the Soviet Union or in the Arctic. No, they were an Antarctic special vehicle and based on a chassis that was originally a tank. Um, and the other vehicle that we used, the RTT, its name, you know, tells you exactly that it was a tank body artillery. I can't pronounce it actually, but it's it was a tank. Um, it was a artillery sort of logistics vehicle for towing guns and ammunition and, and whatever. And so the, the, the Kharkovchanka was derivative of the ATT. With, it just basically had this living van on the tray instead of um, you know, a davit crane or whatever plus boxes. And, uh, and it was plumbed up with um, you know, uh, hot water and uh, you know, facilities inside, um, bunks and... Um, cupboards like a like a living van like a yeah, motorhome really and um yeah really powerful vehicle um they could travel at um about 10 uh, kilometers an hour or maybe faster 15 i'm not really sure if they were empty and, and good surface but um they carried they bunks for three so they really for for an expedition you needed to also have a living van for for the rest of the team and um, they they operated on diesel, uh, which were towed in these in bulk tanks behind the, which was quite different to the way Australians operate. Um, and and the engine or the whole um, the plant part of it was classic Russian, you know, really rugged. If you look inside the cabin, you'd think, man, you're back in the Second World War era, you know, with this these levers and dials and pedals and really clunky kind of cabin and a guy with a, you know like a leather hat on his head driving this thing and pulling levers you know there was nothing sophisticated in the way of um electronic uh dials and gadgets in those days anyway and it sounds like it's a noisy and violent way oh, to man, travel across the, the snow. noise like that was the biggest regret if, if i had one regret about the whole trip was that nobody warned me to take ear protection 
You know, it just didn't occur to me. And nobody said, you must have earmuffs and earplugs. Otherwise, I would have had a bag full of them. It was so noisy. And, and I'm not just saying that, that was an, an annoyance. It was a, actually a health risk because I did spend a fair bit of time riding in the cabin of the ATT, you know, so that, well, because I was taking, we had to stop every now and then. I was taking measurements of the... Uh, accumulation at Snowpost and so I was hopping up and down a lot and we decided that the most practical way to do that was if I rode in the cabin. So riding in the cabin meant that I was fully exposed to the noise and at the end of each day I had tinnitus you know I'd get down from the cabin and I'd be dizzy from my head ringing and just this you know buzzing in my ears Uh, not to mention the fact that when you're actually travelling along, you couldn't, you'd have to be yelling to each other to hear anything. I mean, really yelling. Uh, it was you know, so noisy and pretty uncomfortable too because uh, when you were going over Sestrugi, you know, it was the machine had just smashed its way through. Like, uh, so it was a pretty rough ride. And really amazing vehicles, those things. And constant maintenance on the tracks. You, you write about hammering track pins with a, a venom yeah well i think that um everybody's you know my experience at casey in 78 um showed how you know we were using caterpillar equipment and that in the in, in those days the d5 nowadays a much bigger piece of kit and we had trouble with um not the tracks but the king pins that were pulling the caravans were always breaking so in the case of the Soviet vehicles, they weren't immune to breakdowns either, and they relied on steel pins through all the tracks. You know, the crawler tracks were all metallic grouser blades. Nowadays, the, the modern technology, I think, employs rubber tracks and a lot less of that potential for, for brittle fracture of the steel components. Anyway, these steel pins that were holding the grouser plates on kept breaking um, just by you know, being smashed around. And... Um, so it was just a constant daily task to replace it, the, the track pins. And we had boxes and boxes of these things. And that was about the only spare parts we had. Uh, so it was a, re- and a very um, labour-intensive task, often um, meaning uh, lying on your back with a sledgehammer and hammering these things out and then new ones back in. And wielding a sledgehammer at 3,000 metres when it's freezing cold and you're tired from travelling all day. It was really tough work. Well, that um, reminds me to break into the Traverse side of things and discuss your visit to Vostok because you flew there in an Aleutian 14 and that rapid rise to altitude really messed you about. It sure did, yeah. Well, so if we just step back briefly to... so. The, to understand the context of that, um, when when I left Australia, the primary purpose of my visit was to do the Travers from Munich to Dome C, right? But um, but on an opportunity basis, we we I knew that if there was a chance, it would be good if I could go to Vostok. So that was sort of an opportunity thing. It wasn't necessarily pre-planned or compulsory part of the whole purpose. Um, and the reason was there was a nice movement station that had been mentioned that had been put there seven years earlier by one of the first um, one of my colleagues, and we wanted to remeasure that for to know, um, for surface ice movement, and that's why I went to Vostok. But how I got there was uh, originally by ship Naladan to Mawson. Now I was picked up by the Solution Fourteen you mentioned at Mawson, ski equipped plane, flown to Mirni. Uh, and then within a couple of days, I, th- I can't remember exactly, it might have been three or four days. Um, now, it was a week after I arrived, we left for the Travis. So, yeah, within about three days later, I went to Vostok and I, only, I stayed there for two days, which was just long enough to do uh, you know, remeasurement of the ice movement station. And that meant um, flying from... <clears throat> Sea level, flying from sea level to 3,800 metres in, you know, four or five hours. So that's the same as going from, you know, sea level to um, Cusco. I did a bit of research on other places around the world at similar elevation. Cusco is almost exactly the same. 
uh, and it's higher than Mount Kosciuszko and it's about the same height as Mount Erebus, the top of Mount Erebus. So it's it's really high. And then, uh, you know, if you, if you haven't studied Antarctic geography, and most people haven't, you wouldn't believe that, or you wouldn't think that Antarctica is like that, that it's so high. Um, I mean, the average elevation of Australia is 330 metres, I think, um, and Antarctica is like 2,800 metres, you know, like 10 times higher on average. Most of the people that have been placed in the hyperbaric unit at McMurdo Station for treatment of um, the bends are helicopter crew that flew up the side of Mount Erebus. So that altitude change is really oh, right, yeah. serious yeah. physiological challenge. Yeah. Well, you know, I had to... Well, so the, the story and it's a, was an important part of the story because it, as far as risk goes, it, it was one of those things... I had a, a fall on, the, on a quad bike at Mawson before, we, um, before I flew to Muni. And then travelling to altitude... It, so soon after that, with a with a big smashed head, seven stitches on my head, and a black eye, and having suffered this uh, this crash on the quad bike, that was added risk to the whole uh, whole thing. So um, when I actually normally I would think nothing of all this sort of flying to altitude and whatever, but I was sick as a dog flying up the, uh, from the minute I left sea level and we started gaining altitude I was so sick from what I believe was a combination of, um, of uh, altitude sickness and concussion I don't know what it was it was both I'd say and by the time we got to um, Vostok uh, Vlad came with me and also the doctor he was really concerned he knew that I was going to be in trouble going there but nobody else could do the job so I was and I was going to go come hell or high water <laughs> It's the sort of thing that, as a 25-year-old, you just sort of shake off. But looking at it from this end of the telescope, it's like, oh, geez, what was I thinking? Yeah, well, it was never something I'd consider not doing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, but, but when I got to Vostok, honestly, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand up. And um, there was a little ladder that came down from the plane. And I don't know how Vlad and Slava got me down that ladder, but... They had to physically, like, you know, in those wartime movies, you see the soldiers get an arm, you know, their arm under one of the guys' arms and physically drag him across. The, that's what I was like. I was sort of, they were dragging me across the skiway to a hut, you know. I was, I was so sick. And I spent two days basically just lying down and vomiting, but I, was, I didn't have any food to vomit up anymore. I was that sick. And that was shortly after the fire at Vostok that, left them without power for a winter well shortly so yeah of course a relative term it was you know that the fire occurred in 82 um i think it was 1982 so we, i was there um actually I've, I've lost track of time a bit here i was there in december 83 but they still hadn't they or was it april 83 i can't quite remember it was in relative time short like the powerhouse that burnt down was still just a big um mess of uh, you know charred steel and uh, burnt out uh, components that they hadn't still hadn't cleaned up they were still in the process of cleaning up of course they had power restored by you know full station power restored by then but yeah it was uh, very shortly after that the, and yeah I was there in December 83 but the more important event that occurred in close proximity was the world record minimum temperature. So all the guys that I was mixing with at Vostok had lived through that period of the world record minimum where uh, uh, the temperature was measured officially in the Stevenson screen at minus 89.2 and it still stands as the world <laughs> world record minimum. And they were, of course, proudly telling me how it... Um, actually on the ground was at minus 90 was over minus 90 which you know was the sort of wow factor statement but in practice it was impressive because those guys if you've been to Vostok you realize how uh, it's pretty basic the combination and the standard of um, buildings and they basically had to be outside every day to just move from one part of the station to another and let alone work um, so they had lots of stories to tell about what it was like, um, which we shared over you know, drinks before I 
flew back to quite happily flew back to me <laughs> and that descent to sea level relieved most oh, of oh yeah like it was amazing it was just like uh, night and day every meter i <laughs> we got closer to the coast the better i felt but i i had semi recovered after a couple of days you know like i was capable of walking around un- unassisted by the time we we left but i, I still felt really fragile in the stomach and there's a picture in the book there that if you look a bit carefully, you can see that I, I didn't look very good. You, know. you can see the black eye. I don't want to spoil the book for um, iced coffee listeners, who I all I recommend everyone get a copy and read it because it's a really good. It's a it's a unique story told well, and I think you've written it beautifully. But I would like to touch on the operation because that is a unique feature of oh. a unique experience. Mm. Yeah, the thing was, when, when um, every, pretty much every day of that five months that I was away was almost a story in its own. And even, the, you know, um, the flight on how I got to Muni, and, and if, it, if it stopped there, just how the... The ship voyage to Mawson and the ski-equipped aircraft flight to Muni, that would be enough to, for a venture in, in a, of a lifetime for most people. Then going to Vostok was fantastic. But in terms of risk and um, just sheer, it's never been done before stuff and, uh, and adventure, if you like, um, the fact that uh, during the time we were on the Travis, coming by this stage coming back from Dome C, one of our team members... Um, got appendicitis now that would be a death sentence for normal normally in a situation like that well we were lucky in a in the sense that uh, our doctor well and i must say that the soviets have a policy that on every inland expedition they always take a doctor that, that it's a compulsory part of it it's like their rules well, our doctor wasn't just an ordinary GP. He was actually an abdominal surgeon. So um, on the day that this, or in the week or so that all these events transpired, what happened was um, the fellow who was affected, Valentin, um, reported to the doctor that he wasn't feeling too good and um, uh, almost immediately uh, Slava diagnosed that he had appendicitis. Well, of course, the minute that the minute we became aware of that we you know like it was oh shit what are we going to do now um and our everything we did was just focus on saving his life because we were a thousand kilometers from the station uh the temperatures outside were in the order and in the evenings of in the minus 50s um so it was you know damn cold we didn't have um we didn't have any blood products we didn't have uh I don't know what exactly we had in the way of um, anaesthetics, but of course a general anaesthetic was just out of the question. We couldn't do that. Uh, Slava, you know, a very competent surgeon, um, didn't really know. His medical supplies were sort of a few things in this box and stuff over here and stuff there, and so he immediately had to start to gather it all together and discover what he really had. But it was at just panic stations. And the other thing that was really difficult was that um, we couldn't contact anybody. You know, like we was the radio propagation was really bad at the time. At the you know in those hours, in those early hours after we discovered it, and um, the radio operator, I you know I vividly remember, but I wrote it in my diary. He spent four hours tapping away at Morse code just trying to contact somebody. He just couldn't get through. Um, to tell them what our position was. Because we're trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do? So uh, this whole story is unique in terms of uh, inland Antarctic expeditions and um, was another reason why I wanted to to write the whole story down because it, 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 it was fantastic. And fortunately, the outcome was good, but it didn't look like it when it happened. Uh, it was, you know... It was a real problem. I must say, like, there's, there's just so many elements to it. Like, for example, Slava, um, the, the doctor, had already taken out an appendix at uh, 
Vostok, he wintered the previous year and he'd already done one appendicectomy at Vostok, right? Now, that was only the second in the whole history of the station. I think that's right. Like, it's very unusual for a doctor who goes to Antarctica to have to take out an appendix. That's a very unusual thing. It's very unusual for anyone to get appendicitis in those situations. But Slava, not only did he take out one, he actually took out... He had to do it three times in the course of that tour of duty. The first was at Vostok, as I said. The second was actually at... Um, um, I think this one on the Travis was his second. Now, it could be wrong in the order of things, but he also had to do another one at Muni, which turned out to be peritonitis, like the appendix had already burst. And he, and he did this one in the field. So he did three appendicectomies in the course of his tour. But this one in the field was by... <laughs> was without doubt the most challenging. So in the hours after this happened, um, of course... Yeah, we first of all were trying to contact the station to find out who we needed to tell, how we can, you know, could we get him airlifted out. We started like uh, trying to um, uh, decide what our options were. There were no options. It was in the end. It was like stop, wait, see how Valentin was travelling and whether the operation was going to be necessary. Because sometimes the the appendicitis can from what I understand, can, I don't know what the word is, but the operation might not be necessary. It can sort of go away a little bit. Or in, in this case, it didn't. And um, Valentin, um, Slava decided he had to operate. And of course, we, the station was, we had aircraft support, but th- it was impossible for them to land where we were. I, I mean, I, this will take a long time to explain, so maybe I shouldn't try to because otherwise I won't stop talking. But anyway, we did get a, an airdrop the, the day after the operation, like after it all it was all over. But we want we needed the airdrop because Slava did. He was really short on. He didn't. I don't think he really knew what he had in the lab. Uh, anesthetic. So he he ended up doing this operation with um, a local anesthetic, and he was assisted by Vlad, one of the mechanics. And so I don't know a lot about the details that happened during that operation because I wasn't really... Well, first of all, my language skills were a little bit on the, you know, ordinary. I wasn't following all of the detailed conversation. But secondly, it was, they were being careful not to... They, they wanted to contain the... Make sure that this news didn't get out without a controlled sort of release of information. Uh, and thirdly... Um, you know, just to protect Valentine's um, state of mind and and allow Slava to concentrate, they didn't want distractions. So, so I was basically just carrying on with my work in the other vehicle while all this happened in the in the block. Over the course of what ended up being about a week, and we just basically propped and uh, you know, spent a day or two waiting for, or whatever it was, it's probably less than a day until the operation occurred and then uh, a few days uh, for Valentine to rest before we could start to even consider travelling again. The... Oh, it's just the most Russian thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, it is. It's pure, well, pure like, Soviet. <laughs> I, I was talking to Vlad recently. Well, the last time I talked to him a month or two ago about this, and I said, oh, yeah, by the way... What actually did happen, um, (coughs) because, and he told me for the first time, he said, oh, yeah, well, I was holding the, I I had to hold his belly open, and and I said, oh, how'd you feel about that? And and this is, and Vlad explained, he said, well, I thought I would be okay, you know, and then just as Slava was about to cut his belly open, he turned to me and he said, oh, what do you think about blood? You know, how do you handle that? And Slava said, oh, sorry, Vlad said, oh, okay, I think, Doc, I'm okay. But he said, but inside, he was, his stomach was churning and he was about to faint and he was really cold and clammy. He was really, like, that's what was going on inside. And, of course, then the other guy, um, Serge, was uh, the mechanic. Uh, and this is the other thing I can't get over. If you'd seen Serge's hands from day to day, they were so filthy every single hour of the day. And here he is involved in an operation like that. I don't know how he got his hands clean. And I don't, I assume he had gloves to wear, but boy. Um, 
anyway, his job was to hold the torches, you know. And, like, the operation was conducted. There were two incandescent light bulbs in the roof. I think they were 100 watt each. And two torches. One of, one of them was my Everetti Dolphin and the other was Valentin's own torch. And that's how Slava did the operation, under torchlight and uh, incandescent globes. Uh, yeah, Russian... Oh, I got, and, and I said to Vlad the other day, I said, oh... And so was um, um, Gorbachev in any, or Valentin in any pain? And um, they said, no, it didn't seem to be. He said, but he was swearing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he was that kind of guy. Like, he was, he was one of those Russian guys. He was a character and a half and um, tough and salt-of-the-earth type, you know, guy. But, like... The emotions got to him before the operation. He full well knew what his odds were, and they weren't good. You know, like, he knew it, and Slava knew it, because infection was the likely outcome, and that would be what would kill him if it was going to. Uh, infection was just... Because um, the situation we're in was diabolical. You know, this table we're sitting at here, for example, you, know, you can pull the wings out. Well, that was the size of the table that... that um, uh, was being used as an operating table by um, Slava. And uh, they strung curtains around white, well, white sheets as curtains and they scrubbed the floors and they you know, got, you know, they did what they could to sterilise it. But we, we for example, we, for heating, we had a, a wood fire, a, a, a diesel, sorry, not wood, a diesel stove uh, that just emitted heat. Uh, and that was how, so I had to turn that off so that, to try to reduce the airborne dust and infection risk. But, you know, like, it was totally unique. And, and like I said, Slava was very concerned about infection. But, um, yeah, he was... A, he, uh, Gorbachev was um, awake through the whole thing, felt it all, and, you know, the hands rumbling around his stomach. And could you imagine how the situation... That's really unsettling to think about, if yeah. you alone to experience. Wow. Yeah, it sure was. Well, you know, anyway, they finished... They f- took about two and a half hours. They sewed him up and um, then he, I guess, dozed off. I don't know what other medications Lava was able to give him. But um, And then we got the airdrop the following day and that would have had within it a whole lot of other supplies that Slava could use, you know, presumably antibiotics and stuff like that. Again, I don't really know the detail because, you know, when you start talking technically in, in Russian, that just <clears throat> over my head. You know. Well, that was another interesting aspect of your, your narrative was the process of learning Russian in a fairly intense tutor-student tutor basis for six months and still the language, it sounds like the, it's so precise that if you're not on top of it from the word go, you get left along the way where Spanish and French, you can sort of muddle through. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like Russian. Well, that's, that's right. Yeah, that... Um, and also being... You know, I, I was going to say being older, but, you know, I was 29 at the time. I'm thinking, well, I'm a bit older than that now. And I consider myself old now. And when I, I talk about someone who's 29, I'm thinking they're just a kid, you know um, but even so, learning a language at that age compared to, say, if you did it when you're going through your primary school, which my grandchildren now are doing that, they're learning Chinese at, you know, before they even start primary school. Uh, but, but I did, as an Australian, you know, wasn't used to speaking a second language, and, um, but I did find Russian difficult, and most people will tell you who may try to learn it, that it is a difficult language. Um, you have to understand the construction and the grammar. Uh, and if you don't get the words in the right order and say them the right way, it's sort of a digital thing. It's on or off. You know? <laughs> Whereas in e- English, it's a much more analogue language. You know, you can, you can mess it all up and say it in the wrong order and mispronounce things. But people get the gist of what you're trying to say. It's not that easy to do that with Russian. At least I don't think it is. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the role of ham radio in your traverse because that's quite a 
a recurrent theme in the in the text. It is, yeah. Well, you know, like um, again, that's rereading the diaries made me aware. And looking back, you know, I've I'm, I wasn't a ham radio operator before I went on this expedition. Far from it. I haven't been a ham enthusiast since. Mind you, Vlad was. He was a licensed ham radio operator before we went away. And he was proudly telling me only six months ago how he'd bought a ham radio again. This is 40 years later. And he was still hadn't used it, but he was wanting to get involved in ham radio again. And uh, the reason was uh, was an interest that I, I wouldn't have... Um, I didn't appreciate before I left how valuable that would be in terms of what, you know, during the time I was away. Primarily, it was a means of communicating with Kerry and also uh, my superiors or colleagues in uh, in Melbourne from directly from the field because there was no other way I could make contact. I couldn't send telexes or uh, radio messages through the radio room the way you would if you were at an Australian station. There was no way I could ring up so amateur radio was the only way I could make direct contact. And that was important for... Um, well, as it turned out, I, I wasn't able to use it a lot to talk to Kerry, but I did talk to people in Melbourne. It probably didn't make any difference to what I did um, in terms of work. Uh, didn't allow me to correct anything or to do, in, <clears throat> to do the job differently, but... It did keep people informed, still alive, you know, like we were making progress, you know, the, the science well, was happening. Something that really touched me in the text was while you didn't get to speak directly to your wife, the QSL cards would arrive at your home. Yeah, well, I'm glad you picked up that because I didn't realise that until a few months ago. I thought, when I, I took a picture of all these cards that I collected and I thought, oh, yeah, um, Kerry at least knew I was alive, you know, like we, <laughs> I was trying to make these kind of, these sketch calls. But um, in the meantime, all these cards are arriving in the mailbox from all over the world. And even though it might have been two months since, I, well, it wasn't that long, a month or a few weeks since I last spoke to her. Yeah, another QSL card arrived in the mail. What, what was the furthest to field contact you made? Uh, well, it's hard to say because they were all around the world, honestly. Like... Uh, um, Oh, Europe, there were numerous uh, cards in that picture in the book there from places like Sweden. And um, and I remember talking to a guy in Khartoum one day. Um, we were travelling along in the uh, mobile in the Kharkovchanka and the, all, and the noise that I talked about, even in the back of the caravan, was just unbelievable and you're getting thrown around, it's really rough. And I had a whip antenna on the roof and, you know, with nothing else to do because you're just a passenger. So I, I used to get on the radio and just see if I could contact somebody with a whip antenna. Um, and I remember <coughs> talking to a guy in Khartoum. Uh, I thought, oh, that's pretty um, unusual. But all over the world, Japan, a lot of... Um, whenever I put out a CQ call... Uh, I'd get flooded with people from Japan whose English was often a bit dodgy. Um, the reason they were so, uh, I wouldn't say not common, but why I got so many contacts and calls from them, I think the skip distance just seemed to suit the um, Japan location from where we were. Um, you'd need to be a amateur radio nut to understand what skip distance means, but... Um, but as, well, like, essentially, the Antarctic was a bit unique. There's this effect called polar cap absorption. It means you have to have a minimum distance between you and the receiver for a signal to be able to bounce off the ionosphere. So, so Japan was very popular. But look, I talked to people in the US, in, um, I don't know about South America. Maybe I didn't get, I don't think I talked to anybody there, but all over the world. Australia, a few people, not so many, because, again, the skip distance was too close. Very hard to get through to people in Australia. And that's why I struggle to get in touch with Kerry most of the time. Gave Ham Radio a good nudge in episode 136, I think it was, largely based off um, Thomas Henderson's documentary, 150%, the Jules Mady story. Jules Mady was a ham operator um, finishing high school when the IGY kicked off. And he would sit up late at night with his brother 
forwarding phone messages for Antarcticans that were contacting him. Oh, right, forwarding them. Well, I can... I can uh, and Kerry can really... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I understand that one, that, that need for that. Yeah. Um, sadly, Jules Mady died a couple of months ago, but um, listeners to the series will understand what you're talking about in terms of skip distance and CQ. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, look, it was, it was amazing because... Uh, the minute you say, VK, uh, you know, blah, 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 CQ, CQ, CQ. And I haven't done this for 40 years, but and this is VK0. Yeah, immediately just get jammed with all these people trying to, because they're, they're scanning these guys. And they know, a lot of them knew you were there, and they were just scanning that one or two frequency bands where you commonly uh, commonly transmit on prearranged frequencies. And you just get jammed with these calls. Again, the Japanese guys in particular, they'd be, they'd be polite, but they'd all they'd wait for about a microsecond of uh, time and, and then they'd all be talking over the top of each other trying to get through so that they could make contact. And, you know. and like, that was their thing. That was their hobby. That's how they got their excitement. For me, I was more, much more pragmatic. I just wanted to talk to somebody. <laughs> But the idea that you were a thousand kilometres inland in Antarctica on a Soviet Antarctic expedition, yeah, it's pretty unusual. Another aspect I'm fascinated by is the, the, the clothing of Antarctic expeditions and how it changes over time. And post-IGY, you've suddenly got many nations sending people south and each has its own philosophy and textile industry come to the fore what was the the how were australian clothing and russian clothing similar and different in your experience yeah well um i of course took a full kit of clothes that you know australians issued at the time and that included the windproof outer clothes and uh um, I had a jumpsuit, a Canadian-made, you know, Canadian jumpsuit thing that uh, was like padded overalls, which I found very comfortable to wear. Um, and I had the muckluck boots and whatever. Uh, of course, when I got to the to Muni, the guys were keen to have me dress like them as well and use their clothing. Well, they didn't force me to, but they they gave me things, and I did try them. I, I suppose, uh, like a lot of their mechanical technology, their clothing was um, fit for purpose, if I could say, um, but not as elegant in terms of weight and um, comfort, perhaps. As maybe that was a fit thing as well, but um, certainly worked fine. But, I mean, even today, you don't need high technology in your clothing. You need um, natural fibres. The underclothes is where which is really important, socks, underwear, uh, thermals and whatever, made with wool um, are the best, and you've got to keep them clean. But what I, I tried, the, 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 there was a few key pieces of clothing that are different to what Australians would have used, and one, the most important different one was the boots, these, these um, uh, felt boots that they wear, the Valenki, they're called. And I tried them at Vostok, they I didn't like them very well um, at first, but then later in the trip when I tried them again, I realised I think I was too quick to judge and I really did like them. And as well, of course, the other bit of gear that is typically Russian was the shapka, you know, the Russian hat, the, the things that come down over your ears. And I love that and wore that all the time, along with a, with a, um, with a scarf over your neck. But the, the, coming back to the boots, this was the thing that was interesting because the way they wore them the, the, was like a... I don't know how thick the felt was. It probably looking at it maybe half an inch thick felt boot. And the way you'd wear it, you'd wrap your feet in these sort of... Or at least the way they wore them was wrapping your feet in cloth strips. It, well, it seemed like that's what they were. Maybe you're supposed to use a better... That's all they had. Maybe you're supposed to use a better sock or something. And then pull a thin sock over these cloth strips to keep the cloth strips uh, in place and then you insert your foot into the felt boot and the reason they were used at Vostok 
because there the conditions were very soft. They, uh, your foot would sink into the snow, um, so you didn't need to tread so much uh, as just clearance between the surface and your skin. Um, and they work pretty well in, in soft snow conditions. And I found that when we were closer to Dome C, when I started wearing them, that actually my feet were much more comfortable than wearing uh, the Australian boot with a regular sole and heel. And I don't really know why. I think it's just that um, overall you were better insulated. Um, and maybe it's because uh, the socks that I was wearing with regular boots were maybe a little dirty or thin or something rather. I don't know. But yeah, I really enjoyed wearing the Falenki the second time I tried them. But at first I found it so strange. And I think also, you know, I will say also because, you know, as I was saying, I was so sick while I was at Vostok, I just didn't have a, a mind to do anything. You know, I just, uh, <laughs> I was, I, it was the best I could do to stop um, myself from vomiting and feeling nauseous. And can you talk us through the, the process of bringing your journals into a, into a form that you're happy to publish? Well, it was, wasn't a quick process. It took me a lot, a lot of work. It, like a lot of people, COVID uh, spawned, a, I think, a lot of memoirs and um, sour, dough, sour bread baking and whatever. I, I thought you told you both of those things. But um, I also started painting the house and um, inside painting the house. And one of the outcomes of that was I was um, looking... I, I had this box full of uh, material... Uh, from uh, from the expedition, and I was looking through the diaries for the first time since I'd written them, like when I went on the trip in '83. So it's better part of nearly 40 years, or 37 years, say. And I thought, oh, this is actually pretty interesting. I'd for- there was so much I I won't say I've forgotten, but the detail was had just drifted into you know some back part of your brain, and. I was laughing about it with Kerry and, um, and uh, also on a couple of conversations with our kids, talking about various anecdotes to do with that trip and other things. And I decided that, well, it would be a good idea. I really should do something with this, not just let it go to waste. I'll type it up and uh, maybe that could be something I can share with the family. And I did do that. That didn't take very long. Probably took a few days. But but uh, when I started reading it, I thought, oh look, there's so many gaps in what I've written here. I need to do a bit of research and try to actually figure out what it is I was talking about because I can't remember. And uh, one thing led to another, and I decided that nobody's going to read this unless it's you know a whole lot of context is explained. So maybe I need to. I need to develop it into something that I could give to anybody who knows nothing whatsoever about what I did, and uh, uh, then they might be interested in reading it. And that, it sort of so that's how it sort of developed into what now I think is a uh, an interesting story that has a start and a finish, rather than just this you know, blob of notes that nobody really understands the context to because if you don't know why I went there how it all happened what happened afterwards you know you know who did I interact with what was the history of the time like you know the story is in, you know, of limited interest and um, yeah so I it, one thing led to another and it's, it's taken me the better part of three years to uh, actually get somewhere with it and along the way you lose interest you kind of go through this period of great energy you know you <laughs> do something and then, and then you leave it for a month or two and read it again go oh this is rubbish you know <laughs> don't know what the next step is um, until somebody maybe gives you a bit of encouragement or a bit of information that makes it all uh, makes you get re re-energised well I certainly think it's three years well spent I'm privileged to have read the manuscript ahead of publication what's the next step from here well I'm pretty close to publishing now um, it'll be self-published as you know I'm the publisher I'm the author and publisher and um, I, uh, I just need to uh, finish the proofreading corrections and um, just get the cover design sorted out, and um, I'm using a, 
an agent, Kirsty, who has a service called Brisbane Self-Publishing Service. She's been great. She has access to editors, you know, um, uh, artists and um, uh, what else? More printers and, or anything, in, you know, that her service provides uh, an avenue for anybody who wants to write a book. You don't have to know how to do it. She'll guide you through the whole process at an affordable uh, cost. So that's how I'm going about it. And uh, once the um, once all the corrections are updated and the final typeset copy is, you know, all good, we'll go go to print and I'll make it available. And as an ebook as well, I think um, the book has photos in it. There's about forty pictures that are mostly colour, but they look pretty good as well in black and white. So that means that as an ebook, it should should work fine. Um, I did when I I wasn't going to have so many photos until I discovered again I looked at my pictures and I discovered that if I did a bit of editing and cleaned them up they were actually really interesting and they they all they they almost tell the story themselves I mean they a lot of people um, if you just talk about a cuck of chanker and whatever and not able to see a picture of what it's like you, you wonder. But when you see the picture, you go, oh, I see what you're talking about. Or um, uh, the same thing with um, hammering the track pins or whatever. It means nothing. But when you see a picture, you can kind of get a feeling of just looking at the stance of one of those guys standing there, how tiring that is, you know. So the pictures are a pretty important part of it, I think. I'm looking forward to seeing it come to fruition and holding the the object and uh, time the release of this recording to promote that as best I can. Trevor, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights with Ice Coffee listeners and thank you for turning your journal into a book. I think it's a really valuable piece of Antarctic history that you've captured. Mm, Thank you, Matthew, for coming down and having this chat. I, I said uh, earlier to you, um, it it's like it's been fun, but it's a, it, like my experience was unique, and uh, uh, even Vlad, who was a big part of it, he's he's been really uh, enjoying uh, seeing it come to fruition because he he didn't keep a, a diary, and so I've brought back to life something for him and also the other guys who I've lost contact with, but. The whole, the, this is a type of uh, experience that now um, is very unusual. Uh, even at the time it was unusual, but the, the international exchanges do occur, but um, the adventure that we had is, uh, is being less and less, um, I guess not, I wouldn't say it doesn't happen, but it, it's just um, technology has made life a lot easier in many ways. You know, now, for example, going to Dome C, you'd find a great big station there, you know, so you wouldn't have to be digging through food stacks to find a tin of uh, bully beef in the three metres under the ice cap. Yeah. Is that Concordia Station? Yeah, Concordia, yeah. Um, operated by France and Italy. And uh, it, that, that's supported from Dumont de Ville. Um, but at the time... In '83, it was just these um, Nissan huts that were half buried in snow, and the Americans were using Dome C as a summer, a summer, a temporary summer research station. I think they did glaciology and meteorology studies there. But now it's a great big station there. Like that's phenomenal audio content. If that interview tickled your curiosity even in the slightest, I recommend going to trevorhamley.com and ordering a copy of Vodka in a Vegemite Jar for yourself, and while you're there, having a look at the gallery of images that Trevor's made available. I realise this is going out to an international audience and that some of you may not know what Vegemite is, but curb your curiosity because finding out is unlikely to lead to any level of happiness or contentment greater than you're currently enjoying. 
Give Vegemite the same swerve that you give the Hadley Mearsham as you appreciate your coffee and destroy Carthage. Mm-hmm.